Welcome to the 14th episode of PH Pod, a podcast brought to you by the Boston University School of Public Health and Public Health Post, which informs and inflects the broader conversation on health and social justice. I'm Rubina Viracone, a writing fellow for Public Health Post. A few years ago, Chicago news channel WTTW covered a story on Faustina Beninato. Living in Chicago, Faustina was temporarily homeless. To shelter herself from the windy city's cold, Faustina spent most of her days inside malls, like the Bloomingdale's and Water Tower Place, located on Michigan Ave. At night, she found new shelter on the CTA trains. But among the many hard choices Faustina faced, she dealt with another pressing choice every month, whether to buy food or pads. Here at the Boston University School of Public Health, we have an organization called The Period Project. The Period Project provides free menstrual products to Boston University School of Public Health students, made available in the school's bathrooms. I'm speaking now with Walla Hayek, a member of the alumni working group for The Period Project. Let's start with you speaking a little bit about The Period Project, what it is, and how it got started. So The Period Project started off kind of sharing people's passions about menstrual equity and looking at how do we address a, a health issue that half of the population is is dealing with. Um, and this is before my time. Um, a bunch of BU SPH students kind of got together and were like, how do we work with the community and figure out some of the needs to address periods? Um, and it started off working with um, the shelter, providing pads and tampons and menstrual packages for folks who could not afford or do not have constant access to pads and tampons um, and other menstrual products. And then from there it grew to, well, we have this problem on campus too. And let's shift our focus now as part of our community work to address the needs of the institution as well. And so from there, Period Project grew into a student organization um, and they, they, they won the um, innovation grant through the Af- Activist Bucks Innovation Grant. And from there, we're able to use some of that money to fund for the community packages, but as well now take it back and do more sustainability for on campus. Um, and then from there, Period Project now is able to supply all of the Talbot building uh, bathrooms and a couple of the crosstown bathrooms with menstrual products on campus for free for anybody who wants to use those bathrooms. And then moving off campus, where do you see the future of the period project? Do you want to be more integrative into the community and provide more period products there? Ideally, I feel like period product in different cases. So period product is really interesting. A period project is really interesting because it's a movement across the board. And so we call it period project here, but I know it's called something else in different universities, but it's still happening and the work's still there. I think from a kind of like a long-term vision, it would be great to kind of bring all the powers together, bring the folks together, bring the communities together and be like, how do we work on long-term sustainability for menstrual equity? Um, And a lot of that has to do with advocacy work and just building coalitions. And I think that for us, kind of as alumni of the Period Project, what we're trying to do now, kind of post-grad, is really work on how do we get together and still address some of these issues, even though we're not directly in the university and on campus. A lot of us are from Boston, are not currently living in Boston, have traveled around for work, but I think the passion to address access issues is still there. And that's why we're here, and that's why we communicate through you know, Zoom, we make the meetings, we make this happen. And so I think kind of having multiple things in parallel is really important. Um, first one being coalition building, looking at different campuses who are doing the same work, um, and then seeing what we can do to use that to now implement in the community. 
um, that's the one thing. And then the next thing is working on advocacy groups on like local and federal government kind of levels. I know Massachusetts particularly is working on the I am bill, um, which is providing equity, uh, pro- providing equitable access to menstrual products in shelters, schools, public schools specifically, and um, correctional facilities, which is huge. Um, and not a lot of states have started doing that. Chicago is one of the few states. Um, New York is, uh, places in New York are, uh, sixth district to be exact, is like the only place to do it. Um, and they're one of the very first to do it back in 2016. So we got a lot yeah. of, t- we got a lot of ways to go. A lot, a long <laughs> ways to go. So speaking about the longevity of the issue, this isn't your first period project, so to speak. You actually started your own period equity program back at Tufts when you were an undergrad. Yeah, and I guess I, I guess that really goes to show like this has been an ongoing issue for years. So I went to undergrad in 2014. Well, it's a long time from now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's been I went a while. to right. Yeah. <laughs> so I was an undergrad at Tufts University in 2014, and I started doing um, student government in 2015. And from there, the first apparent issue was why are there no pads and tampons? in the bathrooms um and these the decent kind of decentralized administration is where the the first barrier starts is like not not that nobody agrees that we should have them it's okay how do we actually get this done and so through student government working with a lot of the other student senators and a student body we realized like we really do need to start with how do we have to put them ourselves in um and from there backtracking and looking at okay where do we make this sustainable and how can we make it sustainable and so at my time by the time i was done um in 2018 we were able to implement um free pads and tampons in the six major bathrooms of campus but only in the women's bathrooms and so it was a small success but i think it started in the right direction a lot of that the the conversation back then is um utility and like why would we have them in other bathrooms there was not a lot of conversation on gender neutral bathrooms back then although they were very important still um and so i'm hoping kind of now that this is expanded and like somebody's picked it up and worked on addressing um some of these concerns but also in like the graduate schools in the men's bathrooms and gender neutral bathrooms um and so it's the same it kind of like going back to our conversation earlier like it's the same issue like bu2 i'm sure if we go to other campuses around i know a few of my friends at harvard same issue um bentley same issue berkeley wentworth same issue so it's not new it's definitely <laughs> it's, not new people have been menstruating for for quite some time now so i'm exactly. sure it's been going on for like hundreds and, and hundreds using of paper years. towels for quite some time now <laughs> quite some time when you were just speaking about when you got to tufts and you went to the bathrooms like why aren't there products here i'm sure there's so many people who menstruate who have gone to the bathroom and is like, well, we're making a toilet paper pad today because we don't have access, you know, to products. Oh man, let me tell you, I am one of those people. So I am, so I grew up low income um, and access to things was like very much like, all right, you only get what you need. And oftentimes when I'm on campus, I could not afford to get off campus to go grab pads and tampons unless my parents came for that weekend and helped me. And like they're local, but like they're busy and being student and all these kind of different barriers. And I've many times skipped class because I'm like, well, I just kind of bled through, so I'm gonna go home. And I know a few of other my friends who've had to do this regularly. And like, I'm privileged in a sense where my friend, my parents can come maybe like once or twice um, a month and help me like stock up on pads and tampons. And I, I'm grateful for that. But I know a lot of other people who are not and have to like wait and constantly like reuse paper towels, um, 
reuse like toilet paper like you said skip class have to take time off to go grab some things and tufts campus was like a little kind of remote like the on-campus like convenience store was expensive it was like eight dollars for pads and tampons i'm yeah. sorry I, if, if i had the choice between eating and buying pads and tampons a girl's gonna, gonna go eat. get girls gonna eat right <laughs> you gotta choose the food i mean come on yeah <laughs> yeah and so like and, and it's and it sucks because like we laugh about it now but reading the stats half half the population in the u.s actually has to choose between menstruating and buying pads and tampons uh, menstruating and and like getting pads and tampons and eating and like Especially COVID, COVID, like the impact of COVID on low income and like access to equity, equitable access to to period to period products, increased by like thirty percent. So like, to put this in perspective, one in four humans cannot access yeah. pads or tampons regularly or safely. Like this is a problem, and it doesn't start with just college campuses. It's it's everywhere. Yeah. Well, there's two things I want to note first. Let's note that having menstrual products isn't just a matter of cleanliness or wanting to be comfortable. Like you can develop serious infections if you are not be, like able to take care of menstruation properly. Yeah, and like this also varies based on like different bodies. Like one, clean access is really important because people can get like different like you can get infections. It causes UTIs if you're not like hygienic, if they're not safe, if you have like certain sensitivities to certain products versus others. So that's the first issue. Second issue is if people are constantly like, it's it's not just a matter of like clean versus not. It's a matter of like your health. It has long a lot of long term implications for hygiene, recurring infections, um, getting like. Um, blood-related kind of infections as well, not just like UTI or or, or yeast infections. It's it's it goes beyond that. It can have some serious long-term health implications on reproductive systems, and so a lot of these things are often like unnoticed or unchecked in terms of or unmentioned in the conversation on period equity. Yeah, and I'm glad that you're bringing this up now because I do think this is something that people need to hear because if you don't experience or even even if you had, we don't talk about it enough to really address the issue. Um, another thing I wanted to go back on was you were talking about your experience growing up and living in period poverty. Can you just speak more about the importance of having period products, not just in universities or colleges, but in like schools, like elementary, yeah. middle school, high schools, why that's important? Yeah, absolutely. I think it goes back to the same conversation of like, it's kind of a basic need and we need we should be responsible for covering basic needs. As kids, it's so embarrassing to bleed through your pants. And like on top of that, there's cultural stigma, which if you bleed through your pants, oftentimes you get sent home. You're not, they don't have, like schools don't have or are not equipped with giving you pads or tampons or like a pants change or a clothes change you get you go to the nurse if the nurse has pads and tampons you get one from the nurse but they're under no obligation of having any and then if you're lucky you can wash your pants wait for them to dry and then wear them back and go to class and that entire process could take up to two hours where you now you've missed time in class and like on top of that it's the embarrassment too like as a kid um and as somebody who works with children in general like it's we never talk about what periods are, so we never understand what the stigma is and where, how do we address it. And so, you know, being a teenager who's bled through many times because I'm never prepared for a period because <laughs> I'm a kid. Right, right. <laughs> right? Like, I've had to face the embarrassment of walking through the hallway with blood on my pants. And I am ashamed, right? Like, I don't know any better. And because it's cultural as well, like, in my culture, my parents are Arab, 
We never talk about periods. It's very much hide it. It's very much pretend it doesn't exist. Oh, don't make sure your dad doesn't see or make sure your brother doesn't see right. or make sure your friends don't know yeah. or don't talk about your cramps. And like our, as a society, there's so much better we could do in terms of communicating and addressing the convers- like the issue in a more conversational and safe way that we can address now um, the equity access issues as well. I'm also thinking too, for young people that are menstruating or beginning to menstruate, that kind of limits your options in certain avenues. For example, I played sports my whole life from so I was six through college, and I had access to period products growing up, and that meant that I could continue to play my sport, which was soccer. But if you don't have access to that, I mean, you just blocked off a whole avenue for potential and success and honestly a different like life trajectory for people, and that just kind of upholds privilege and gives those opportunities to people who have the privilege and have access to period products, you know? So it's a very interesting thing to think about that it's really not just about menstruation itself, it's the implications about how it affects your life. Yeah, I agree. And again, we forget like one in four people don't have access to a pad or a tampon. And like, I always joke around and say, we give condoms out for free and like sex is preventable, periods are usually not. So if we're gonna address it at the very basic level of equity, it's like, all right, can we just give it out for free? Like it's it's a serious public health issue, just like sex is. If we care about giving people like access to safe sex, we should also be caring about giving people um, access to safe menstrual products. It's it's all the same thing. Yeah, it's not just menstrual health equity, it's reproductive justice, exactly. right? It's reproductive equity. So I want to switch gears here a little bit and talk about policy and menstrual products. Period products have a sales tax or luxury tax, which automatically classifies them as a non-essential product. So I do have some stats here. Collectively, menstruators pay over $2 billion a year on period products and $150 million just in the sales tax. So I guess another question is, what are states doing at the policy level to help make period products more affordable? That's a great question, and it's been um, kind of controversial for the longest, which is it's really tough. So a few different states have done tax exemptions or sales tax exemptions specifically on these products, which now classify them as um, like essential health products, but it's still not enough. And then you have the states that are way behind that are like still taxing these things. Like I think Texas is one of them. No surprise. No, I was just saying not, <laughs> not, not that surprising, to be honest. Yeah. You have like dandruff shampoo is exempt, but pads and tampons are not. And I'm like, oh my God, what are we doing here? I know. I was, I read it. I was reading an article before this uh, interview and someone who was lobbying for period equity was saying how legislators vote based off their experiences. And I can guarantee you a majority of people in power and legislation have not experienced it. So it's it's hard to advocate for something that you haven't experienced. I mean, we're human. That's just part of our psychology, so to speak. So I guess do you have any suggestions on how we can help combat that at the government level and help you know advocate for menstrual health equity? Oh, man, that's a packed question. I know. I'm sorry. I know you're good. <laughs> um, I think so... Kind of backtracking on on what you said, when it's hard for us to advocate for things we don't experience, I think that just comes down to empathy. Like we don't we don't all have to experience struggle to understand when somebody's struggling and understand that they need help. Um, and that that's kind of like the basis of where our government should be looking, kind of to address. 
Um, I mean, it's to no surprise, our government is led by a lot of like wealthy white men. And I think that is part of the issue. It doesn't represent the entirety of the population in the US. So that's the first problem. And the second problem is this conversation is stigmatized on multiple levels. Not only is it a reproductive health that it's often only associated with women and women tend to take the backseat, but it's also a issue of like intertwined with poverty, social determinants of health, like education, and then cultural stigma as well. And like all of these forces kind of act against the idea of reproductive health is a priority. Um, but there's also a lot of good things that are happening. So the tax exemption is a good start. I think about 15 states have tax exempt sales tax exemptions, which is great because it does make it cheaper. And then a few more states are taking that step further now and saying, okay, where do we have the responsibility to make access free? Um, and those are, so So Massachusetts is one of them. We've now, we talked a little bit about the I yeah. Am Bill. Um, the I Am Bill is a new legislation that is working to provide free access to menstrual products in facility, in, in correctional facilities, so state prisons and, jail, uh, and jails, um, school, public schools specifically, and shelters. And those are the three places that are high need because they're under the custody of the state, more, more or less. So you brought up an interesting sector that I want to explore a bit more. People who are incarcerated are one of the most marginalized people in our society. So what does menstrual health equity look like in that sphere? That's, um, it's, it's, it's so wild to me that that's often not in the conversation about access to resources in incarcerated communities. We hear horrible stories of them having to use their commissary to pay out of it. Like, you're already in prison. Your health insurance is covered by the state. State gets paid, like, around $100,000 to keep somebody in prison yeah. for a year. That $100,000 should be covering basic needs, right. like a toothbrush, toothpaste, shampoo conditioner and pads and tampons like it's really not very hard and there's funding for it i mean we already dehumanize people who are incarcerated right like we don't view them as a legitimate viable member of society that can contribute and by not giving them access to period products which you know menstruation is one of the most biological human things you take that dehumanization a step further and you reiterate it and that's just not good for people in general. That's not good for people who are incarcerated if you expect to re rehabilitate them into society, right? So that's a whole nother issue that I think's at play too, but that's for, that's for another podcast. We'll bring, you, <laughs> we'll bring you back in for the issues with the carceral system. So now we already talked about people not talking enough about menstruation and now I want to switch gears and talk about the language surrounding menstruation. So historically we've regarded people who menstruate as kind of like a burden and menstruation as a burden and America particularly has not been good about talking about menstruation. Ads for period products began in the 1920s but those ads did not include language that directly represented menstruation. We used a lot of euphemisms. Uh, there's time of the month. We got visit from Aunt Flo. And my personal favorite was communists in the summer house, which seems bizarre. But I mean, that's how people couldn't say period or menstruation. 
So ads began in the 1920s. It wasn't until 1985 that that taboo was broken when Courtney Cox, Monica from Friends, said period in a commercial. But I mean, even then, they used blue liquids to show absorbency. Period like commercials or period product commercials are always women like galloping around in frilly dresses and holding like spinning tampons in their hands. So I think when we glamorize it like that, we're not really acknowledging what it is, and that is a very natural biological function. Yes, normalize saying periods. So period, period, period. Period. <laughs> like, say period. 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 Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just say period. It's okay. And, like, it's very much glamorized because it's sexualized. Sure, periods can look cool and glamorous and light and chill on, like, a white lady in the ads showing a box of always and being always on time and always great but like in real life periods do not work like that like sometimes periods are inca- incapacitating like sometimes people need to just take a day off because their period cramps are so heavy because they're related to endometriosis or sometimes they have a history of PCOS and they need to take the day off because uterine cramps and headaches and body fatigue are part of your period and it's not a glamorous day and that's okay and I think that we should also normalize that part of periods as opposed to always have the conversation, well, you sound kind of grumpy. Are you on your period? Well, yeah, I'm sorry. Ha- things are happening in my body. I needed a day off. But capitalism says, no, I got to be here despite my health needs. So, yeah, I'm going to be grumpy. <laughs> yeah. Not, not a fan of capitalism. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> it runs the world, but like, should it, you know? Anyways, another hot take. We'll talk about that <laughs> later for another time. Speaking of capitalism, so this actually reminds me. We don't have any good research on the effects of the ingredients that are in period products. And so one of the other writing fellows, Sarah Marr, shout Sarah, she wrote this great article called What's in My Tampon? And essentially what she says is that tampons and pads are regulated by the FDA, but they're classified as medical devices, which means that manufacturers do not have to divulge the exact ingredients that are in these products. Back to capitalism, Capitalism sets the agenda for what is like explored in research, right? So like whoever is funding your research will most likely have a certain agenda or a direction they want you to go with that. So it just also shows if you don't have people who menstruate in power dictating like, hey, you know, maybe we should check out tampons and pads because a lot of people are using them. We want to make sure that they're not going to have health, uh, poor health outcomes because of it. Right, I agree. And I think that's another part of the access versus utilization issue is that, like, when we look at access, it's not just access to, like, any pads or any tampons. We want to make sure it's safe access and access to reusable products um, and access to sustainable products that don't impact your health negatively. There's plenty of people who get very sensitive when they use certain, like, I know always was there was an issue with always because of some of the plastic wrapping that they have on top of that, and it causes yeast infections for people. And, like, it's so much more expensive to treat a yeast infection than it is to prevent a yeast infection. Right. And I think that's what we, we need to start thinking as well, is, like, how do we prevent health complications related to, to menstrual equity um, or, or related to menstrual kind of, like, uh, menstrual effects in general, like having your period. Um, I did remember something I want to bring up about the policies. Part of the COVID relief bill last year, which was the CARES Act, it kind of outlined a bunch of different um, relief changes to help mitigate some of the socioeconomic health impacts caused by COVID. Um, and actually, one of them was um, having um, pads and tampons be classified as medical devices or medicines or kind of under that big category and so it allowed people to get reimbursed through their insurance or, in, or their HSAs um, for buying 
menstrual products. And it was mostly kind of limited to pads and tampons, but it's a good start. Yeah, and I guess that's a little bit of optimism in the very pessimistic field of public health. But we love to see actionable solutions, right? Like actual changes being made. And we love to see that happening presently. And you know, you can hope that that just like carries forward in the future. And sustainability. We really need to make sure these policies last forever. <laughs> yes, because you know, we do need them forever. forever. I'm, I'm gonna assume that evolution <laughs> won't work that quickly and we're gonna need it forever. I guess evolution wouldn't happen if you didn't have it. So, you know, <laughs> if we're being honest. <laughs> So, Walla, out of everything we've talked about here, when it comes to menstrual health equity, what do you want people to know? I want people to know that it's it could be anybody struggling to access. Um, I want everybody to know that periods, again, are okay. Let's normalize the conversation. That helping um, educate more on what periods look like and what they feel like and how they impact our daily day lives is really important. Um, I want it to be normalized as a health need, as part of bigger the conversation on reproductive health and reproductive justice. Oftentimes, I feel like people are starting to get worn out with the with the justice conversation, but it's it's really important. I think we really need to remind ourselves we're humans, and humans have needs, and these are one of the needs. I think another part of this conversation that we didn't discuss as much, but I think is also very important, is talking about the intersectionality of this. Um, we did talk about just kind of loosely like why do we need pads and tampons in men's bathrooms but a, lot, a huge part of this is also visibility like a lot of folks from lgbtqia community are often invisible in this conversation about requiring access to like men's like menstrual products in general whether it be pads tampons diva cups whatever just access to something that helps them feel comfortable in their bodies against the burdens that they're already facing systemically right. to like, access healthcare in general. Like people also assuming that it's only females who menstruate, because a lot of people menstruate and don't identify as female. Exactly, and I think this is a huge a huge um, part of the conversation as well, and oftentimes people face resistance when they're talking about like expanding some of these things to just all spaces, as opposed to just like women's spaces. Um, so I think these are really important. I think we should really just pick up a book or pick up a diagram about the reproductive system and like kind of work through there and then understand why periods are important and what it looks like right? <laughs> and what the timelines are and just recognize that this is real biology, physiology function. Awesome. I have one last thing before we end our conversation here. One of the goals we have in public health writing is to use short sentences. Essentially, how can we say a lot by saying a little? Because if we can give the public a short, impactful message, a short sentence, they're more likely to remember and hopefully internalize that message. So, Walla, the period project. What's the short sentence? Normalize access to period products. Period. Pod features conversations with public health influencers. We cover topics that may be familiar and sometimes uncomfortable. This podcast series is brought to you by the Boston University School of Public Health and Public Health Post, which informs and inflects the broader conversation on health and social justice. Every day we feature new articles about the state of the health of the population. 
Join the conversation by following us on social media and by subscribing to the PHP Friday Roundup to receive our stories of the week delivered directly to your inbox by visiting publichealthpost.org.